Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. This is the Arts Commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB each week. We have an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to artists, musicians, and other creative people. Today we're going a little farther afield. We're still talking to a creative, but today we're going to be talking with Scott Billington. He is a longtime music producer, and he's based in New Orleans now, but he's worked with Mississippi musicians as well as musicians from throughout the southern United States over many years as part of his work with Rounder Records. And uh, he's got a brand new book out on University Press of Mississippi. There's the Mississippi connection again. The new book is called Making Tracks, a record producer's Southern Roots Music Journey by Scott Billington. Scott, thanks for, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Larry. It's great to be here. Well, I enjoyed the book very much. And before we kind of dive in, I was hoping you could just kind of give people a quick overview of the sense of, I mean, you've, you've worked with so many people over over the years, but just give them a taste of, of, of some of the different people that you've worked with in the studio as a producer over the years. Well, I've gotten to work with so many artists that I, I admired. I was fans of these artists, uh, people like Solomon Burke, uh, Charlie Rich, Bobby Rush, who's, who's from Jackson now, uh, Irma Thomas, Dirty Dozen Brass Band, and I also made a number of Zydeco records by people like Bojack and the Zydeco High Rollers and Buzu Chavis, Nathan and the Zydeco Cha-Chas. It's a... Uh, pretty much a, a cross-section of Southern Roots music, a little more slanted toward Louisiana, but it's, it's all very real music. You know, you, you go through, you know, starting in your early years and, and talk up and pick out select artists to kind of highlight that you've worked with over the years. But you also kind of give your origin stories. People always want, sure. I'm sure they always wonder, where does a record producer come from? That's not something you can <laughs> sign up for at, at career day. Uh, but, but I was interested in that your roots go back to the blues and a lot of Mississippi artists when you, you first sure. got into music. Yeah, I discovered the blues when I was in my early teens, really. We were living in Arizona, we moved to New Jersey, we moved to Massachusetts. I guess I heard the blues first through the Paul Butterfield Blues Band um, at the Cafe Agogo in New York City when I was, oh, I guess only 14 years old. My friends and I would, would take the subway in and, and go hear music. And from there, I just got deeper and deeper into the blues. We moved to Massachusetts and I got to go and know a guy named Skippy White who had a record shop in Boston. And he started turning me on to people like Percy Mayfield, a guy who made blues records using jazz musicians or the Ray Charles Orchestra, kind of down-home Louisiana artists like Whispering Smith, Elmore James, the great Mississippi slide guitar player. I began collecting records, and I just got totally into it. Um, my dad passed away when I was when I was 14, when we were living in, in New Jersey, and I think my therapy was just immersing myself in the blues. There were a couple of British blues magazines that I subscribed to called Blues World and Blues Unlimited. I read books and I started to learn to play the harmonica. I, I, I really went in deep on this. After I graduated high school, I enrolled in Northern Arizona University. I, I had liked Arizona, so I wanted to go back there, but I decided to take a trip along the way to drive through the South for the first time just to see 
this land where so many of the artists that I admired had come from. I bought a, a really unroadworthy 1959 Ford panel truck for $200. It had, had big holes in the floorboards on the front, and I spent a whole summer patching it with sheet metal and screws, and uh, uh, it, it really shouldn't have made the trip, but it did. And I started driving south. I, I, I drove through Nashville, ended up in Memphis. I was going to go to New Orleans. I started driving down Highway 61 into Mississippi, off onto 59, and just outside of, of uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, the the truck just all of a sudden quit. Now, this was August in 1969. It was probably 100 degrees outside, and it's like, oh boy, here you are. You're a uh, a 17-year-old kid that looks like you're 14 driving a yellow truck with Massachusetts plates, and you haven't cut your hair since you got out of high school, and now you're going to have to get a ride and see if you can get this truck fixed. <laughs> and uh, so I um I stuck my thumb out on the first car that came along. There was a young couple in a red convertible. They they took me to a garage in, in Greenwood, and they were the most kind people. They sent somebody out with a Jeep. We got the truck rolling again. The starter motor had burned up. The, the guy at the garage found another one and kind of looked into my truck. I had my records and my little platform bed back there, and uh, I asked him, how much do I owe? He said, well, it's, why don't you give me $28? And it just made me have such a warm feeling for Mississippi after that, of having been stranded, essentially, and have these these very kind people come to my rescue. So at, at that point, I decided to forego the trip to New Orleans, just somehow made it to Arizona and went to went to college. But um, that was my uh, my first excursion to to the South in 1969. <laughs> You're listening to the Arts Hour today, and I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Scott Billington. He's a longtime music producer, and he has a new memoir out on University Press in Mississippi called Making Tracks. The other early years thing that I wanted to touch on was you spent a short, you know, a year or so in Arizona and then we're back to Boston, but that mm-hmm. you were part of, uh, I think it was called the Boston Blues Society and helped present yes. a lot of blues musicians, included, including legendary Mississippi blues musicians. And maybe just talk a little bit about that, kind of your first experience kind of working one on, you know, in, in person with these kind of well, these sure. type of performers. I got a job at a record store in Boston and through the record store, I met several of the people that were involved in what at the time was the Boston Blue Society, especially Peter Goralnik, the author who remains my, my great friend today and who, who wrote the introduction to this book. And seven or eight times a year, we would stage concerts. We had one of our members, Dirk Gessner, who had access to performance spaces at Harvard University. So we brought in people like Johnny Shines, Houston Stackhouse, Sun House, Dr. Ross, from the Bahamas, Joseph Spence from New Orleans, little brother Montgomery. It was a wonderful experience to meet these artists up front. Now, this is kind of the tail end of, I guess, what you'd call the first blues revival, but these were among the generation of artists who had first recorded in, in the 20s and 30s, many of them. And uh, what a privilege it was to be able to to meet them and hear them perform. Looking back on it, it must have been a really odd environment for them to play in because you could have heard a pin drop in those places. This was no juke joint, but they were given a, a very reverential treatment with, with the audience. That actually led to my first record production of sorts. I went to work for Rounder Records about five years after working at the record store, first as a record salesman. That was going to be my job, was going around to record stores and selling records. I was also playing in a band at the time, so wherever I traveled with a band, I would go sell records for Rounder and 
try to establish relationships with stores. One of the things that, that I guess was my first record production, I proposed that we release an album of Johnny Shine's recordings that had been recorded for the Boston Blues Society. So Peter Goralnik wrote the notes and we went to a studio and edited together the tapes and, and that became our first release and really my, my first entree into record production. I went on to make a couple of records with Johnny Shines and Robert Jr. Lockwood, but it was very a very slow process. It was a very organic unfolding of, of going into the studio and actually starting to have a hands-on relationship with, with the music and with these artists. And it seems like these opportunities came at least partially through the growth of Rounder Records, right? You kind of got in before they really started shoot, you know, kind of had some really big successes. Is that, I mean, being there in the, in the situation of when they were ready to kind of expand out from their initial work? Oh, a- absolutely. And I'm ever thankful that I was in the right place at the right time because I made a few more records when Rounder was still a very small folk label with the rockabilly artist Sleepy Labeef. Bill Nallen, one of the founders of Rounder, and I went to the Bahamas to record Joe Suspense, which was also a, a Boston Blues Society relationship. And then all of a sudden, Rounder had a hit record with George Thorogood and the Destroyers. It was a remarkable thing that a small folk music label had recorded a, a basic rock and roll record by a very charismatic performer, and it, and it caught on at radio. The second record that George put out, Move It On Over, was an even bigger hit. And um, both of those first two George Thorogood records went gold, but it was very blues-based music. And, and of course, at that point, every other blues artist thought that Rounder had the magic formula, the touch that was going to enable them to, to sell records. One, one of the artists that came to Rounder was Clarence Gatemouth Brown. And um, one thing led to another, and I was soon off to Bogalusa to produce Gatemouth. Now, I, I had... Um, bought Gates' record, Okie Dokie Stomp, on a 45 RPM record when I was in high school from Skippy White in, in Boston. Um, it's a great record, this this big kick and big band with horns and Gates just riding over the top of it with his, with his distorted electric guitar. And all of a sudden, I had to confront this person as a, a human being in the contemporary world. This was no longer some fantasy world from some old record that I, I could imagine whatever I wanted, but uh, Gate pulled up to the studio in his, in his black cowboy clothes and black cowboy hat, and he had quite a swagger. Someone who was very confident in himself, and we set out to make a record that, that sort of picked up on that big band blues, big band R&B vibe of some of his earlier records. We put together a big band, but I was still relatively new at this, and I realized once we started recording that the horn arrangements were, were written only for the songs that the band had been playing on the road and then only for three horns. And here we were with a, with a six-horn horn section. And um, we had a very busy week with one horn player writing charts in one room and, and working on arrangements while we rehearsed the rhythm section in another. And when we finally had all of the pieces and parts together, we'd, we'd go into the main room and record with Gate performing live with the band, which, which is still the way I, I prefer to record today. Sometimes you go in and patch things up, or you might take another vocal or something, but that idea of making something happen in the moment is what happened on that Gatemouth record. And um, lo and behold, the record came out. It was a little different for Rounder, I think even more different than George Thorogood had been, which was a little rootsier, I would say. And 
the record won a Grammy that year. It was the first Grammy that Rounder had won and certainly something that I had never imagined. And that really gave me my entrance into the world of record production in any kind of serious way. And I really do have George Thurgood to thank for that. And I've told him that too, that uh, without that influx of, of money into the company, that might never have happened. Yeah, think of all the people that wouldn't have been recorded if George Thorogood hadn't shown. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he that's right. <laughs> he, he is kind of a, a funder of of the tradition, after all. So let's yes, let's give absolutely. thanks. <laughs> um, one thing before I want to leave it, I wanted you to talk real quick about uh, Gatemouth Brown with people who may have know his music. He maybe is very roughly classified as a blues artist, but that he had very different ideas about that. Oh yeah, Gate didn't like to be put in a box and. As the years have passed, I've appreciated that more and more, how, I don't know, people might look at somebody and have a a a preconception about what they are as an artist, because Gate actually came up in, on the border of Louisiana and Texas. Uh, His father played acoustic string band music, and you kind of have to figure that in um, in the 30s and 40s, in that area, on any given night within a 50 mile radius, you might have had a western swing band, or a Creole band kind of pre-Zydeco or Cajun music, as well as blues and rhythm and blues. And Gate had absorbed all of this. And um, he was truly a a professional musician and a professional entertainer who took great pride in his bands and the way he presented himself and his arrangements. He could be a little disparaging of the blues, um, almost as if he considered that it was the music of the ignorant. And he, he, he could be relatively unkind towards some artists in that regard. But, but I, I understand where he was coming from because he was, he was bigger than the blues. The blues was a part of him and he did it really well. But the more I got to know him in the studio, even after the first couple of days, it's like, oh boy, this guy can do so much more. He really doesn't want to be stereotyped as a blues artist, but here we are essentially making a blues record. So he was on board with it. And I think having that big band, he respected, for instance, T-Bone Walker, who had a, a big arranged band, um, and, and kind of blues-based jazz artists like Count Basie, they were, they were part of what inspired him as well. So people are often more, more complicated and more rich than, than a first impression might, might give you. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission. And our guest today is Scott Billington. He's, got a, he's a longtime music producer. He's worked with many legendary musicians over the years. And he's got a new book out, a memoir of his work called Making Tracks, A Record Producer's Southern Roots Music Journey. And it's on University Press of Mississippi. 
in the book, there's lots of legends that are familiar to many, you know, like Irma Thomas and Solomon Burke. I mean, they're all interesting. Some of the more interesting chapters are some of these less heralded people that were, you know, very uh, individualistic performers. And I was hoping Mm -hmm. you'd talk just a little, you mentioned him before, but talk a little bit about Sleepy Labeef, who you worked with early on. Oh, yeah. Sleepy was a great friend. Uh, He was from Smackover, Arkansas. And he was uh, one of the original generation of rockabilly artists. He was a contemporary of Elvis Presley. And he was actually the last rockabilly artist to be actively signed to the Sun label. But he, he toured New England um, quite often. He, he traveled in a motorhome with a small band. And I was living in, in Massachusetts when his bus or motorhome broke down on the main turnpike, caught fire, and he had it towed to a place called Allen's Truck Stop in Amesbury, Massachusetts. And it stayed there for the next three or four years. Um, that became his base. He got a new motor home, but um, oh, four or five nights a week, you'd, you'd likely go here sleepy playing at Allen's Truck Stop, which was the, um, the place where he'd stop. They had a small motel, they had a diner, they had a big, big dance hall. I mean, it looked like some sort of uh, Southern dance hall that you might find in, in Lafayette or something today. And it was just so refreshing and mind-blowing in a way to walk into this truck stop and hear this guy playing blues and and rockabilly and country music. Sleepy may have known 10,000 songs, I don't know, but but he he had a huge repertoire, a big old baritone voice, and he was a really good rock and roll guitar player. I ended up performing with him quite a bit, playing harmonica, and um, played on a few of his records as well. But we just became great friends. I have a great story about Sleepy. We were we were going to a rockabilly festival in upstate New York and leaving Amesbury. And I, I got there in the morning, and he's got a, a an old gold Cadillac that I'd never seen before. And he was kind of down on his hands and knees with a roll of paper towels and a bottle of Formula 409 kind of cleaning up the seats, taking the mildew off and everything. And I said, Sleepy, I've never seen that before. And he says, well, I thought we'd take the Cadillac today. So I rode with him, the other two guys in the band, rode in a bread truck that actually had the equipment in it. And um, we got out on the interstate highway, and whenever Sleepy stepped on the brakes, there was just this terrible clunk, clunk, clunk sound. And um, it, it really didn't sound good. I said, man, you know, we can go take my car if you'd like. So he said, no, nah, it's just a little rusty, you know, don't, don't worry about it. So we got out to the end of the Massachusetts Turnpike, going into New York State, going down this big old long ramp, and Sleepy stepped on the brakes, and there was just this little popping sound, and there were no brakes at all. And he just turned to me calmly and he says, well, hold on. Oh, we knocked down a couple of stop sign ahead signs and came to rest right at the bottom of the ramp at an intersection and went to the gas station across the street. And the whole solution was to cut the brake line. Uh, the, the, the drum of the brake had just shattered into pieces. It was so rusty and, and put a nail in it and crimp it and fill it back up with brake fluid and be on our way. Um, he was just an imperturbable guy. But that day he gave a wonderful performance and the, the most wonderful thing about Sleepy, you never knew when this was going to happen, but the music would just take him over. You'd just see him put his head back, his eyes would roll back a little bit, and his whole being would just exude this incredible soulfulness and power. And whenever that happened, he would just lift everybody up. Sometimes after that happened, he might turn me and say, well, I guess I got a little carried away there, but... Uh, he was a, a wonderful artist. He just passed away a couple of years ago, and he kept rocking right up, right up until the end. And his sets were a complete stream of consciousness. Um, you never knew what was coming next. 
And I think the best record I made with him was actually a live record. It's sort of live. We did it at a club in Boston, and Sleepy gave one of the best shows I'd ever heard him do that night. We had fairly crude recording conditions, just a little room above the stage. And when I listened back to it, it was like there was a, there was a buzz in the bass. And even though Sleepy was dead on, and the drummer, who, Tommy Lewis, who later played with the Wagoneers, was with him all the way, but the rest of it was kind of raggedy. So this was a, an exercise in record production of recutting the bass and, and the rhythm guitar parts and so forth and making it sound as good as it possibly could. And that, that's something, a philosophy I've carried forward in recording, that the record isn't a performance, it's its, its own art form. And whenever the producer can do something that enhances the listener's experience, that makes it better and makes that illusion, that thing that the, the listener envisions and feels when they listen to the record, then it's kind of fair game. It has to be done with a very gentle hand and with a with a empathy for the music that's being recorded. But um, I think if you listen to that record today called Nothing But The Truth, you, you get close to the essence of Sleep of the Beef. You're listening to The Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Scott Billington. He's a music producer, and he's got his new memoir out on University Press of Mississippi called Making Tracks. The other one that I was really excited to read about, who I've been a fan for many years, is Charlie Rich. You kind of built up, I guess, a reputation of working kind of like a lot of producers who maybe work with the, you know, the new young band and you kind of guide them the way you, you work with a lot of veterans like Rich who had recorded for years and years and years and came in with kind of their own ideas, kind of like Clarence sure. Gatemouth Brown. But it sounds like Charlie Rich was kind of his own unique project in terms of getting him to do, this was a kind of a later in year in his performing years recording. Yes, it was actually Charlie's final record. It happened because of Peter Goralnik, who had written a chapter on Charlie in one of his books. Peter became aware of another side of Charlie, I think. Charlie would have jam sessions in the recording studio that he had in back of his house. He, he did several concerts performing a much broader repertoire than anybody had heard him perform on, on his popular records. Now, of course, he was the Silver Fox man in the 70s. He was one of the most popular country artists in the world. He may have been exactly that, but he had a side of him that went back to his days with Sam Phillips and Sun Records that was bluesier and rootsier. And he also had amazing piano chops. I mean, he could sound like Errol Garner. Jazz harmony came to him very, very naturally, as it would to a, a person with the ear of a, a great jazz musician. So Peter was very instrumental in putting this record together and the repertoire, but we did some new songs that Charlie had written or that he'd written with his wife, Margaret Ann, or the one that she wrote on her own. We had a couple of traditional blues, and my favorite story from that record is a song called Pictures and Paintings, which I had gotten from the writers Doc Pomus and Mac Rebenek, Dr. John. Doc Pomus had sent me the song on a cassette tape. Um, it was slow going with Charlie. He was a very fragile person, as many artists who are capable, I think, of giving the most of themselves in the recording studio, you can't just push some button and have them be at their best. It's a process. And, and certainly it was with Charlie and, and waiting for him sometimes to feel what he wanted to do. But we, we got into the habit after working each day of going back to his house and just hanging out in his recording studio and talking and one night I thought, oh, this is the time I'm going to play him this pictures and paintings demo. And he listened to it and shook his head. In the affirmative, it was a fairly slow demo, the tempo of, of the demo. And he said, you know, I could hear that with a swing feel. That, that, would, that would kind of do it for me. We'd had two rounds of sessions in Memphis, and 
just as we were wrapping up the first, Charlie had gone home for the day and I said, well, wait a minute, guys, you know, could we just cut a demo of the song? Uh, you know, Charlie would like to hear this as a swing song and um, let's just give it a try, see if we can come up with something that he, that he would like, just, just, just to get an idea, a sketch. And just because we didn't have a vocalist, I did the vocal on this demo and I think we took one pass at it. Okay, that sounds good, man. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we'll see you soon. And I took it back to Charlie. He says, yeah, man, that, that got it. I think, I think that's it, you know. We came back to Memphis about three weeks later to, to resume working on the record. And one day Charlie said to me, he says, man, why don't you put up that track that you cut on pictures and paintings? And I said, a track, Charlie? Well, that wasn't a track. That was, that was just some, a demo. We, that, not, nothing's supposed to happen. But they said, no, no, man, that's a good track. You know, put it up. So we put the tape on the machine and, and put it up and, you know, turn off my vocal and it sounded pretty good. So he said, okay, man, let, let me go take a, a pass at the vocal on that. And um, I remember Peter Goralnik was in the studio that day. It was just this amazing moment where Charlie went out and did a couple of passes of vocal on the song and said, all right, let me go put some piano on. And he took two passes at the piano and, it, and it's just an amazingly beautiful performance and song. It's a sad song. But Charlie likes sad songs. I remember he said to me once, you know, I, I, I don't like happy songs because sad songs are the only songs that say something. And um, that ended up becoming the title of the record. It, it's a beautiful record, I think. At the end of the day, this was the record that Charlie had wished he had made all of his life, I think. Um, there's Duke Ellington, there's some blues and so forth. And um, it, was, it was quite a privilege to be able to work with him. Let's skip over before people start thinking, are you ever going to talk about Mississippi? And let's talk about uh, <laughs> a man who's still very much with us, Bobby Rush, who you've worked just in, within the last, what, seven, eight years, you worked with him on a... Maybe? Yeah, I think five years, really, five, six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is a pretty contemporary record, uh, Porcupine Meat, another Grammy winner. The part that I really loved about that story was his demo process and how he... His, his his demo equipment that he uh, presented oh, to Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Bobby and I had known each other for probably, oh, 30 years, I think, by the time we ended up working together. We first met at a recording academy meeting out in Los Angeles many, many years ago. And um, Marion Levy, who was one of the founders of Rounder, tried to sign him to Rounder Records at once, but he said, no, nah, I got my own thing, you know, because he is a, a one-man business in many ways, and he knew his audience, and, and he had the the records and, and the way of distributing the records that got to that audience. So he was, he was happy with that. But I, we just stayed in touch over the years, and I, I kept asking him if he would like to make a record. Finally, my wife and I went and hung out with him in, in Memphis, and he liked her as well. And one day he just kind of came around and said, man, I'll, I'll make the record. Yes, let's do it. Come, come on. And he just got a new manager at the time, Jeff D'Elia. And I think he could see that his career was transitioning away from what you might call the Chitlin circuit that had supported him for most of his career and moving toward being acknowledged as an elder of the blues in a more international sense. And um, that was the record we set out to make. So John Ed, who's my wife, um, and I and, and our engineer Steve Reynolds got together with Bobby and Vastai Jackson a couple of times at, at Bobby's studio. I mean, at, 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 sorry, at Vastai studio in Hattiesburg, and um, Bobby and Vastai got together a number of times on their own and made a bunch of song demos. Johnette and, and Bobby and I wrote a couple of songs together. And um, I was pretty confident that we had the material to go into the studio and make a record and book the band, book the session. Bobby came to New Orleans, was, was staying in the hotel down in the 
Central Business District, I just went down to hang out with him the night before the recording sessions. And he says, you know, I, I, I got something here I'd like to play for you. He had this old Radio Shack cassette player, probably from the 70s, and this piggly wiggly bag full of cassette tapes that he carried around. And um, he would put in a tape and kind of go, no, that's not it. No, wait a minute. Yeah, there it is. And all of a sudden there was a demo for the song called Porcupine Meat. And he did that a couple more times, found this wonderful song called Me, Myself, and I, and another one called Midnight Gardener, which was one of his classic double entendre songs. And at that point, it was like, okay, man, we had good songs before, but now we got an over-the-top set here. So um, we added those three songs to our, our selection that we were going to go, go cut in the studio. And he, he let me put together the band Jellybean Alexander on drums, who I'd worked with with uh, Thurl DeCluet, who was a New Orleans R&B artist. Uh, Cornell Williams on bass, who, who often played with, with Jeffrey and also with John Cleary's band. Uh, David Torkanowski on keys, Vastai on guitar, and Shane Therio on guitar. But Bobby also took a real leap of faith. He let me bring in the, the brilliant New Orleans sousaphone player, Kirk Joseph, for half of the record. And I'd always wanted to use Kirk on a non-brass band record. He plays with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. And to me, he's just one of the great bass players to come out of New Orleans or anywhere, really. Uh, with just this incredibly funky vibe. I could see when he started taking that big horn out of the case, Bobby was like, ooh, let's see if this is going to work. Um, but once he heard Kirk and once we got into the pocket with some of these songs, it was just such a joyful thing. It gives the record a little New Orleans feel. But mostly Kirk is just a great funk bass player, play, happens to play it on the horn. So anyway, that, what, a, what a treat it was to, um, to be able to work with Bobby. And I think he, he just gave it his best. I mean, he's not a young man, but to see him in the studio giving his all to a performance like he was on stage, like he was um, performing for a thousand people or 10,000 people, it's quite an inspirational thing to see that somebody who's done it so many times can still muster that enthusiasm as if they were making their first record. I was curious to hear you talk, you know, he's so well known as performer, but you know, he's also a harmonica player. And I've never heard, what, what do you, as a fellow harmonica player, what do you think of his harp playing? Oh, Bobby's a, a brilliant and solid harmonica player. He's just great. You know, we did a session that, that, with him, not for Porcupine Meat, but that came out on his, the next record that he put out in Lafayette, Louisiana. I think it's just called Bobby Shuffle on that record. And he plays just chorus after chorus of this really in inventive harmonica playing. He never repeats himself. I actually think he's gotten better on the harmonica over the past 15 or 20 years than when he was younger. Uh, at one point, I think he felt it was something that made him seem a little old-fashioned. So he didn't feature it so much in his shows, but now he does. And um, his tone, his ideas, he's really very good. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. 
We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Scott Billington. He's a music producer, worked with many legendary Southern musicians over the years, and he's got a new memoir out called Making Tracks, A Record Producer's Southern Roots Music Journey, and it's on University Press in Mississippi. Well, you know, so I was thinking about some of your role as a, as a producer and, um, and some of the things that you brought up in the book, and... And one of them was, you know, at one point you were talking kind of about the, the level of energy it takes to be a producer and to kind of keep everybody up and, and kind of work on the technical parts, work on the emotional parts and all of that and how kind of how taxing that was for it's not something, you know, that came naturally to you in terms of being outgoing and gregarious in that. No, and it, it still doesn't. Um, I kind of have to psych myself up for each project. Being a producer can, can mean many different things depending on each session um, ultimately, it's just a matter of getting the record done, whatever that takes. And I guess you would say that the producer is the person that makes the final decisions when decisions need to be made. Sometimes being a producer involves putting the whole repertoire together, finding the songs for an artist to record, or maybe working with them while they develop the repertoire. It can mean working with an arranger or actually doing arrangements. And there's the technical aspect. Now, you know, I've, I've always been blessed to work with really great recording engineers, especially Dave, David Farrell and Steve Reynolds here in New Orleans, who have often traveled with me as well. So it's nice to know that somebody has the technical aspect of it more or less under control. But of course, you're still always listening for what should something sound like? Is the microphone in the right place to get that guitar sound the way you want it? But being a producer also means being aware of what everyone's needs are at any given point in the session, in particular your lead artist. I think if I've done my job right as a producer, it's, it's like being a casting director. So I've put together the right group of people that are all going to enjoy working together and um, that are all there to support the artist, whatever that takes. But it, it can be taxing, especially when things are not going exactly the way you want it, to keep people engaged enough to wait for it to come back. And uh, sometimes you get on a roll and it's just the most amazing feeling in the world to realize that you're capturing these sounds to tape and that somebody else is going to be able to hear them. But I have to say that after a week or two of doing this with somebody, I definitely breathe a sigh of relief when it's finally all on tape. You know, you, you, you just hear what you want to be there. You know what the artist can do, or, or I think I know what the artist can do most of the time, and, and I, I want it to be there to get that out of them. And it means listening really hard and um, just being aware of what's going on. It, you don't want things to go down the wrong road and, and, um, and you're, you're stuck with something later that, that didn't reach its potential. You know, I, I can give you a, an example of a, a, a song that came together with the artist Johnny Adams, who was the greatest vocalist ever to come out of New Orleans. Incredibly beautiful voice from a, a really deep baritone to a, a kind of a screeching falsetto. And he, he had a, a kind of a gospel singer's soul with a, with a jazz singer's ear. He really could sing anything. I always had to be careful with him that while we were running through an arrangement, working on, on the track and the key and the groove and all of that, 
that he didn't go in there and start singing along because he would just give it his all for the first couple of takes. So then, you know, by the time the track was together, he, he'd lost interest in it in a way. I mean, there was just something so spontaneous about his first or second take. But we were recording an album of the songs of Percy Mayfield, who um, was that writer that I discovered through Skippy White at that record shop in Boston when I was a, when I was a teenager. And um, we'd actually gotten a couple of new Percy Mayfield songs from his widow. And we had tried recording a song called Walking on a Tightrope every day for, for four or five days, maybe three or four days. Different tempos, different keys, different feels. And most of the record was coming out really well, but whenever we cut the song, it just seemed to fall flat. It wasn't inspiring Johnny, whatever we were doing. And I was, I was ready to let it go. We were in the studio for the final day of our recording sessions for the album that ultimately was called Walking on a Tightrope. And John Cleary, the piano player, was out in the studio just kind of fooling around and he started playing this bum, 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 dun, bum, 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 just this little riff. The bass player, James Singleton, went out and, and started joining him, just jamming along pretty soon. Walter Washington, guitar player, Duke Robillard, guitar player, Johnny Vodakovich on drums had all gotten into this groove. Now, when they started playing, I just kind of nodded to David, the engineer, and he put the machine in record. But all of a sudden, Johnny got up off the couch in the recording studio and very quietly walked out into the studio, into the vocal booth, and closed the door behind him and started singing Walking on a Tightrope. This was a groove that we hadn't rehearsed, hadn't planned on, but it was perfect for the song. He just sang it so beautifully. Walter and Duke played beautiful live solos with, with the track. The band even did its own fade, and they stopped, and everybody cracked up laughing. Um, which is always an, an incredibly good sign. If the musicians all start laughing at the end of a take, you know you got something good. And they said, oh, man, you should have recorded that one. Man, that had it, man. You, you, you should have got that. And I said, well, come on in the studio and listen, because we did. They all came in and listened to it, and everybody got really excited. It was just such a beautiful performance. But then they all said, man, now we know it. Let us go out and do it for real. So everyone went back out into the studio, and we rolled tape again, and it was gone. It just wasn't the same. So that one beautiful, spontaneous performance that we'd gotten, I think, was the best thing on that record. That just that ephemeral thing of trying to find that moment when you can capture that kind of feeling and spontaneity, it, it's, it's what I often live for. You're listening to The Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Scott Billington. We're talking about stories from his new book, Making Tracks, that's on University Press in Mississippi, a memoir of his work as a music producer. The one thing, you know, so you worked with a lot of, you've worked with a lot of performers who are not songwriters. So you've, mm -hmm. over the years, kind of developed, I guess, connections with a lot of really uh, legendary songwriters like Dan Penn and Doc Palmas, you mentioned before. And I, sure. and I want to put in, a, uh, I saw a Mississippian in there, Carson Whitsett, the late Carson oh, Whitsett. Oh, you bet. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah. original um, studio band at Malico, and then later yes. worked as a songwriter. So, talk yeah. about how yeah. you developed the that you know the, that stable of of guys and and ladies who submitted for this stuff. Well, it happened gradually. When I first made that Gatemouth Brown record at Studio in the Country, I think I was using my record collection as my library of songs. You know, that's okay up to an extent, but um, kind of want to give people something new and hopefully something that is more tailor-made for the particular artist that you're working with. I think the turning point was when I was in the studio making the first album that I made with Johnny Adams in New Orleans, and the producer, Joel Dorn, was just finishing up a project in the studio with Aaron Neville. 
And Joel and I talked for a while, and then he realized it was going to be recording Johnny. He said, you know who's, who's the world's biggest Johnny Adams fan is Doc Pomus. And I said, really? He said, yeah, man, let me put you in touch with him. And within the next couple of days, we'd gotten this cassette tape of a song called From the Heart, which turned out to be the, the title track of the record that we were working on with Johnny. And it was kind of a revelation, like, wow, man, I can really reach out to these songwriters and they'll send me songs. And Doc and I became really good friends. I went to his 60th birthday party in New York. He was just an all-around encouraging, supportive person. I think he did that for a great many people. Now, this is a guy that had written Save the Last Dance for me. He wrote songs for Elvis. He was a master of his craft. Dan Penn, who had written songs like I'm Your Puppet, um, Cry Like a Baby for the Box Tops, to this day remains an incredibly resourceful and, and creative songwriter. Um, we actually produced an Irma Thomas record together of all of his material. But um, I remember when I, I'm making another record with Johnny, I called Dan. He said, well, what you got in mind this time? You know, you got a, you got a concept? And I said, well, yeah, it's going to be a, a B3 combo record with Dr. Lonnie Smith as the organ player, kind of one foot in jazz and one foot in the blues. He says, okay, I got you. I, I'll come back with something. A couple weeks later, I got a tape in the mail with a note from Dan saying, well, I got half of it for you. It was a song called One Foot in the Blues, <laughs> which, which he'd written for Johnny. So yeah, David Egan in, in Lafayette was another person that I, I relied on a great deal of the time. Putting together songs for, for Ruth Brown, Oh, Sarah Brown, the bass player in Austin. I, I became good friends with a guy named Eddie Gomez, who worked at Bug Music, which represented Los Lobos and a lot of really good roots rock acts. Um, he really got it. So he was a publisher. So I would go to him when I was looking for songs. So I, I just developed this big network of people to go, go to for songs, eventually getting to the point where people were writing for specific projects that I was working on. And I guess if you have someone like an Irma Thomas and you say, I'm doing a new Irma Thomas record, people who love Irma Thomas want to want to hear her sing their songs, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can imagine what a treat that would be. I mean, David Egan and, and Irma really bonded, so he would write specifically for her. The record that we made of Irma's um, right after Katrina called After the Rain, we had actually been scheduled to go into the studio in New Orleans the week after Katrina. And of, of course, it, it, it didn't happen. And the studio, ultrasonic studio, ultimately went underwater and never came back. It's a parking lot today. But David was an integral part of that record. We, we ended up recording at Dockside in Lafayette, Louisiana, with, with all of the musicians that were originally going to record on that record with Irma Stanton Moore from Galactic on drums and James Singleton, David Torkanowski. You've heard me mention their names a lot, but that's because they're really great players and really reliable and uh, always there with their ears wide open. So um, there are some musicians that I've, I've worked with over, over and again um, for that reason. I mean, Carson Witza, you mentioned him, was, was like that. He was just a valuable, valuable guy to have on your team. And you, and you mentioned in the book, like, and they'll play as little as needed, you know, that they, even though they're the greatest players, oh, yes, they, they can be minimalists. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a real art to, to knowing how little to play. If you think about something, somebody like Vastai or, or David Torkanowski, they really play just about anything you throw at them and play it well. I think of Michael Tolles, the Memphis guitar player. What a, what a versatile and amazing musician he is. But the parts of a record are like the, the parts of a puzzle, and they all have to work together and complement each other. I remember working with Dr. John once on a record that we co-produced, again by Johnny Adams, and he just had this little bop a doop doop bop 
ba ba doo doo ba little organ part that he played using a percussion sound on the organ. He said, yeah, man, you know, every, every record I have that played that on has become a hit, you know. I, and it, it seemed inconsequential, and, and yet when you put it up in the track, it just made the whole thing kind of glue together, you know. It's, um, it's different than, than live performance in, in that regard, at least for the, the musicians who were creating the bed track. Well, so now you are you are ba- you are based in New Orleans now. You you retired mm-hmm. from Rounder about five years ago. Yeah. yeah and mm-hmm. so, talk about what you're you're teaching now. What 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 what's your what what's your thing now? Yeah, I've been teaching at Loyola University, a uh, class in record production. Not since the pandemic, though. So I'm I'm hoping to get back to that in the fall. Just because everybody's so close together in the recording studio, it was it was difficult to continue doing that, and. Um, I've been working quite a bit with my wife, Johnette Downing, who's a children's musician and author. And as I mentioned, we wrote a couple of the songs with, with Bobby Rush for his record. And, um, you know, still doing an indie, indie production every now and then. I just worked with a, a singer-songwriter named Birkin Graffia. And I've occasionally done a, a new record for Rounder, too, even though I'm, I'm retired as a member of the staff. But I, I did the Samantha Fish record that came out a couple of years ago. And a Christmas record with the McCrary sisters in Nashville, the um, daughters of the legendary founder of the Fairfield Four Gospel Quartet. So um, there's a uh, there's plenty to do to keep busy right now. And you know, obviously, this book was something I'd always wanted to do, and and the pandemic gave me the opportunity to to write it. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a great read. I I encourage folks to check it out. It's on University Press and. I'd assume all places where good books are sold, you can find a book by our guest, Scott Billington. (laughs) Thanks again for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're really welcome, Larry. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.